Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Good morning, everyone. Uh, Very nice to see you. My name's Ed, as Brooke said, and um, along with my wife, Hannah, and our three kids, Evie, Lola, and Margot, we moved here to California in September. We're planting a church in LA, in Culver City, in Los Angeles. And uh, we have been friends with Darren and Alex for a while, and you guys have been um, super supportive to us. Uh, Thank you very much, whether you know it or not. Uh, we've, uh, we're kind of planting in relationship with you guys here at the Garden, and hopefully we'll continue to develop that relationship as time goes on. I feel like I want to say, um, and, but I'm, I'm, I'm wary of saying this because I think Faith sort of had a prophetic sense of the rain being a good thing. I've been here since September. I really think the rain is a bad thing, and I would like it to stop now, please. <laughs> Like, if I wanted rain, we'd have stayed in London. Um, could it be sunny? Does it get sunny ever here? I mean, yeah, okay, good. That's good to know. Uh, yes, anyway, we, we're carrying on in Ephesians, and uh, we've got to verse 11 of chapter 1. Only five chapters to go. We've got to verse 11, uh, so let me read uh, this to you from Ephesians chapter 1. In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. It's really good stuff. But let me start with a couple of quotes from a couple of atheists. You may not know them, uh, but one is Bertrand Russell, who was a very famous atheist in the uh, 60s, particularly in the UK. He said this, uh, beware, it's not very exciting. Anyway, all humanity's labours from the beginning of time, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. All humankind's achievement 
must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Happy stuff. <laughs> and Friedrich Nietzsche, who's a little bit more famous, who, having proclaimed that God was dead, stated that this left humanity with the awe-inspiring catastrophe that everything means nothing. Wow. Happy times. Now, I doubt that there are many atheists in the room, although there may be, but as a former one myself, I know the reality of these issues. And I know, having spent enough time around church for a while, that actually we as Christians can also start thinking or asking these sorts of questions ourselves. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. Are things just random and arbitrary? Are we actually just atoms floating around in space with no real significance? Are we actually just living something of an illusion and that really nothing matters, that whether we feel happy or sad, it's not really real? We could be full of joy or desperately lonely, but it doesn't really matter. In uh, Les Miserables, and I have to say this, I, I really despise the musical theatre genre. I just don't like it at all. I know people will get really excited about it. I just don't like it at all. Although I did like La La Land, and I want that to win. But I just find it odd. They're walking around having a conversation, then one of them starts singing. It's just odd. Anyway, in Les Miserables, the revolutionaires sing this before they go into battle. Will the world remember you when you fall? Could it be your death means nothing at all? Is your life just one more life? In short, do you matter? Well, the beginning of Ephesians says emphatically, yes, you do. Everything means something. Everything has value because God has a will. He has a desire and he has a plan for the world. So you mean something. Your life means something. What you do, how you act, how you relate, who you relate to, all of it really, really matters. You are of infinite importance as you sit there infinite importance. Little old you. I know. You. You really, really matter. God is nice and he really likes you. I am his favourite, but he really <laughs> likes you because God has a plan. Verse 11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. You were chosen before the beginning of time. That's how important you are. Before any of this that we see around us, you. But in being chosen before the beginning of time, does this mean everything is fixed? Is your life preordained? Is it the case that whilst it looks like I'm actually choosing things and choosing to do stuff and making choices and having freedom, that actually that's just an illusion, that God's already planned everything and I'm just a sort of pawn in the game? Aren't we supposed to be free? It's a very good question. Is life predetermined or do we have complete freedom? 
Well, the Bible always gives the same answer to this and other similar questions. And the answer the Bible gives is this. Are you ready? Yes. (laughs) Is God outside time or inside time? Yes. Is God just or is he merciful? Yes. Are we, as Christians, perfect new creations, or are we also still fleshly sinning things? Yes. Is everything planned, or do we have complete freedom? Yes. So frustrating, isn't it? So frustrating. But the Bible's answer remains the same. Is it this, or is it that? Yes. Is it that, or is it this? Yes. Yes, there is a plan, and yes, there is complete freedom. And I believe that Christian maturity really is about accepting and living with the tension of the, of the grey. Very few things are black and white in this life. There are some very important ones. But most of mature Christian living is sitting in the tension. Because since Adam and Eve chose independence and went their own way apart from God, the timeless God has been acting in time to restore the world to its original state. In a moment in time, in Abraham, God chooses a person. In a moment in time, in Israel, God chooses a nation. And then most importantly, in a moment in time, as he dies on the cross, in Jesus, God chooses the whole world. The plan remains the same today as it was 1,000, 2,000, 10,000 years ago, and indeed before time even began. It involves all things in heaven and earth, which necessarily includes you right where you are, and it involves God redeeming it all for his glory. He wants to make everything beautiful. The plan has always been the same. About 10 years ago, my fiancé and I, um, who became my wife, just, it wasn't another fiancé, but she had, she, at the time, she was my fiancé. It was probably more than 10 years ago, about 12 years ago. We were on Easter Sunday. For some reason, we'd chosen not, go to, not to go to church. Never do that, especially not on Easter. You have to go to church, naughty. Anyway, we, we were sitting together praying about our future. We just got engaged. And I had a very powerful experience of God speaking to me. It was very awkward, because there were just two of us in the room. And Hannah was praying for me, and we were praying about our individual futures and our collective future together as a married couple. And I experienced, I probably had two extremely powerful experiences of God in my life. One was in becoming a Christian, and the second was this. The plan for me had been to start a new business. I'd worked in advertising for a bit, it hadn't gone very well, I'd become a Christian, and I was trying to start this new business. I'd found a lease on a property, and it was all about to go. Anyway, we were praying, and I... As Hannah was praying for me, I fell off my chair and felt this incredible power run through me. It was very embarrassing because Hannah had no one else to pray for. And she's like, what do you do when there's one person there? Anyway, (laughs) what God said to me so clearly that I found it very difficult to deny it, even though I tried, was don't open the business. Train to become a vicar. Now, I know that in this country there is actually... a pastor is quite an aspirational thing for some people. Actually, that's quite a good thing. In the UK, that's really not the case. No one wants to be a vicar. You have to wear a kind of black long dress and a little dog collar, and it's just, it's just a bad career choice in general. So 
I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do that. And Hannah, my wife, especially did not want to, 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 me to do that. Because being a vicar's one thing. Being a vicar's wife is even worse. Anyway, <laughs> so this was, this was problematic for me. This was problematic for me. Very few of my friends were Christians. Most of them thought I was crazy for going to church at all. And now I felt God saying to me very clearly, I need to become a vicar. The thing is, in the 12 years since, it's been emphatically the best decision, apart from marrying my wife and having kids, that I've ever made. I'm actually really good at it. It's amazing, I know. But I love it. I love what I do. I love what I do. I love doing the things that God has called me to do. If left to my own devices, would I have chosen to be a vicar? Absolutely not. I mean, like seriously, no. <laughs> but I love my job. And this, I think, is the beauty of there being a plan. There is a plan. There is a security in knowing that God has a calling on our lives. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And it means, therefore, it's not all down to us. It's not all down to us. It means, actually, we're off the hook. Because we don't have to make perfect decisions anymore because he's got a plan and he will look after us. Consider, for instance, some of the bad decisions you've made in life. I mean, just the worst thing you could possibly have done. At the time, they may have seemed really good decisions, but in hindsight, you look back and go, those were really bad decisions. For me, I'm always haunted by some of the clothes I wear, wore as a student. Those were bad clothes. I think it's the preserver of students. We think we're wearing good clothes. We're really not. And I look back and I could see it in my friends' faces. You're going to wear that? Wow. But at the time, it seemed like a good decision. I know it's a trite example. Consider some more fundamentally bad decisions that you've made in your life. People you should never have dated, but you did. This is painful, isn't it? Jobs you should never have taken, but you did. Housing arrangements that you should never have agreed to, but you did. Now, when you look back at those, isn't it a relief to know it's not all about the decisions that we make? That it's not all down to us. It's not all about making perfect decisions. Because if it was, would any of us get out of bed in the morning? We are, in some way, destined to make bad decisions, at least some of the time. But there is great security in knowing that despite all that, God has a plan. That God is in control. Which brings me on to, what about those of us who thought we were following God? Or in fact, we know we were following God. We thought we were doing the right thing. It may even still look like we are doing the right thing, but actually nothing is going right for us right now. If anything, it would have been better just to ignore God entirely and go our own way. Now, I think this is one of the most painful places that we as Christians can live. And I'm sorry to say, I don't think there are any nicely packaged answers which will necessarily make that better. Except that, and this really does change things, knowing that you matter. 
knowing that you're special and loved and cared for and that he is right there in the midst of all the trauma. As a sort of protracted result of me deciding to become a vicar, us trying to get our heads around it, we ended up, or I ended up working at a church in London, which I loved, I really loved. It, always, it was always a pressure on Hannah to sort of, because we were trying to work out how we are called together as a couple and how actually it's really my calling that seems to be defining things. And I, again, I don't think there are any simple um, answers to that. But in general, it was a great time. I loved doing what I got to do. I really enjoyed my job. We had lots of friends. And then about three years ago, I felt like I was called to, to leave the church and to plant a church with Hannah. Hannah wasn't necessarily down with that. Um, but we explored LA. I came out to LA and then Hannah came out to LA. Helen had already been before and felt like God had said and actually it felt more and more like God was calling us to plant this church in LA. And this was exciting for us. It was scary, but it was exciting. And so we raised a bunch of money, we were all ready to go, and then I left the job, and then nothing happened. Nothing happened because our visa refused to be processed. We were told maximum it will take five months, might take a bit longer than that, but you'll be fine, um, and then you're ready to go. Five months came, went. Nine months is the absolute maximum. Nine months came and went, and there was just no sign. No sign of anything happened. I'd left my job, we'd rented out our house so we had nowhere to stay, we'd taken our kids out of school. The process took another eight months on top of that. We, lived in 20, we moved 27 different times. We were shipping the kids around to different places um, and I wasn't working. I didn't sleep a full night's sleep for about 16 months because I, I couldn't deal with the stress. Do I think that was God's plan? Honestly, I don't know. I do not know. I can't be sure. I wouldn't wish that year on anyone. I do not want to relive it. I know that actually that pales into insignificance compared to some of the things that people in this room are currently going through or have gone through. But I don't think it's necessarily God's plan. But I do, and I'm completely sure of three things. I can be sure that the New Testament makes it very clear that God only wants good things for his children. He does not cause pain and strife in the same way that he does not cause cancer and death. He's not interested in giving us horrible situations in order to teach us a lesson for the simple fact that the whole story of the New Testament is about him doing everything himself to take away the horrible stuff. That's what he comes to do. He is the one born in a stable. He is the one flogged and whipped. He is the one that's hung on a tree because he is going and has done it. If Jesus is so interested in suffering, why did he spend most of his time taking it away? He did it because humanity has proved, we have proved this over again, that we can't sort it out on our own. 
The second thing is, I can be sure that the New Testament makes it clear, though, that we have complete freedom. Which is a great gift, but it also brings with it a brokenness to the world. A brokenness which affects us even when we are not to blame. Sometimes, in fact, we are innocent bystanders and we still suffer. Welcome to the world. And it means that all choices, all plans, all decisions come with a murkiness inherent in them. But finally, what I can be sure of, and the New Testament makes clear, is that God will use anything to continue his plans for good. And this is the beauty of a God who is active and loving. He is right here. His presence is right here in this room, ready to redeem things. The plan stays the same. The overall arching plan stays the same. The execution is always changing as circumstances changing. That's because he is right here, active and loving, ready to get involved. Both Hannah and I would say that over that 18 months or whatever, incredible good came out of that. Incredible good came out of that. It was one of the worst, if not the worst, years of my life. I would not wish it on anyone, as I said. But God redeemed it. He brought beauty out of ashes. We learned more about ourselves. We learned how to love each other more as a couple. We learned how to love our kids more. We made better choices as a result. We learned to live better with the tension of this horrible world that's sometimes horrible and sometimes amazing. And despite everything, we actually chose to trust God more. Our faith increased in ways that it would never have done if we just arrived. I am hugely grateful for that, and yet I wouldn't want to do it again. Which brings me on to the rest of the passage. You matter, and there is a plan, but nothing is fixed, and God doesn't always get what he wants. But most importantly, his desire and his will is always to redeem everything, and he gives us his spirit to do it. And this is key. Choose to believe that he is part of the solution, not the problem. That he loves you, and he cares for you, and he is with you in the midst of it all. And know fundamentally that you are not alone. Verse 13. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a depositing guarantee, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Firstly, the Spirit is always ours. It's always fully ours. We have been sealed and marked and given a guarantee of our inheritance, and we are his possession. He treats you like a son. He treats you like a son. Now, often... Um, Language of sonship is retranslated for um, inclusivity. So he treats you as a son and a daughter. I am all for that. You can listen to the previous talk I did here uh, if you're in any doubt. But in doing that, what we actually lose is some of the power. It's important that it's a son that we are treated as because the sons inherited everything. We are treated like sons because we get it all. We get it all. We are co-heirs with Christ. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, if you're the eldest or the runt, you get it all. You cannot be sacked, you cannot be fired, you cannot be made redundant. You are his child. 
He will never let anyone snatch you from his arms. If friends let you down, you can dump them or surreptitiously defriend them on Facebook. <laughs> if boyfriend or girlfriend let you down, you can dump them. You can even divorce your spouse. You can't get rid of a child. It doesn't matter what you do, what choices you make, how much you screw th things up, he will never, ever leave you. He cannot. He is your father. He gives you everything. He doesn't want to. You are guaranteed. So given that we are always his, and he gives us everything, all of heaven and earth, let's allow the Spirit to make us all that he wants us to become. Hannah and I went on a um, parenting uh, seminar thing this, this week. It was given by a highly influential psychiatrist. He spoke about a book he'd written about the neuroscientific evidence, which points to uh, the idea that in order to raise resilient, well-rounded children, the starting point, the sort of fundamental basis, doesn't actually have anything to do with how we as parents um, treat our children. The starting point must actually be processing our own experiences of childhood, however painful those have been. Because without doing that, we are un unable to actually uh, see how to make an assessment of what our children are experiencing without actually colouring it with our own assessment of what has happened to us, subconsciously or otherwise. So we misinterpret what our children are experiencing. And that can actually cause them real pain. So the starting point for good parenting is actually to go inside ourselves. We need, in his language, to retrain ourselves, in my language, to be healed. The problem was, this book was rejected 24 times by publishers. And this guy is a multi-published, um, world-renowned authority, but he couldn't get the book published. And the reason given was always the same. Do you want to hear the reason? The reason is this. This is America. Parents don't want to be told about what's wrong with them. They want to be told about what's wrong with their kids so they can fix their kids and then their kids can go to Harvard. That's what's wrong. Now, and it could be the same case in the UK. The book was eventually published and has been described as one of the single most important textbooks on parenting that's ever been written. And a little plug here, if you're interested, um, my wife Hannah, who's here at the back, she uh, runs a thing called the Circle of Security Parenting Course. It's about becoming emotionally healthy parents so that we might be able to interpret and help our kids with their emotions so that they become the fully resilient, um, uh, well-rounded children that we would love them to be. And she's going to be running something similar um, in LA, and if there's enough interest to down here in Long Beach as well? Yep, this is a very small nod. Uh, yes, so if you're interested, um, come and talk to her afterwards. I forgot to mention the, the name of the book in the first, in the first talk. It's called um, Parenting from the Inside Out, if you're interested. The reason I mention all of this is not just to talk about parenting, but because I think there is a parallel here with the work of the Spirit. We've got to let him in. 
so he can retrain or rather he can heal our experiences. Because Christianity is not fundamentally at its heart a matter of trying hard. It is not fundamentally at its heart a matter of going to the perfect conference or hearing the perfect talk or writing the perfect note and then going, oh, finally, I've got to the perfect note and now my whole life is, is, is fine. It's not about that. It's not about trying to fix ourselves or trying to try harder. Fundamentally, at its heart, Christianity is about giving up. It's about giving up. As John Wimby used to say, let go and let God. Because, second point, the Spirit is always working. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I keep asking, I keep asking, I keep asking so that you may know him better and better and better. And I keep asking. If, as some churches teach, we already have the Spirit, so we don't need more of the Spirit, why is Paul, having just literally in the sentence before stated that the Ephesians have the Spirit, he is the deposit guaranteeing their inheritance, he is literally just now going, and I keep asking for more of the Spirit so that you might know him better and better. Why is he doing that? It's because of the tension. Do we have everything that we've ever needed in Christ, or do we need more? Yes. Is there one baptism of the Spirit or lots of baptisms of the Spirit? Yes. So frustrating, isn't it? The thing is, we are leaking beings. We are leaking beings. We leak the Spirit. We are not perfect. We will be perfect. We have been made new creations. It means we can receive everything from him, but we leak. So we need to be filled up over and over again. The Spirit leaks, and we need more of him. So, as Paul will go on to say in Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit and go on being filled with the Spirit over and over again because we can't do it on our own. The problem is we don't like to do this because it requires humility. And as I've said before, no one woke up this morning going, I hope I have lots of opportunities to be humble today. I couldn't get enough of that. I really hope I can just grovel in the dirt for a bit today. <laughs> That's what I'm looking forward to. But that is the key to Christianity. Not groveling, but humility to say, fill me because I need you. Because we're in um, Los Angeles, I keep having the same conversation with people over and over again. I meet a lot of people for coffee. Keep having the same conversation. The conversation goes like this. Um, beautiful person says to me, I feel like God has called me to be a successful actor. <laughs> That's how the conversation goes. It's less of a conversation, more of them telling me stuff. I feel God has called me to be a successful actor or screenwriter or whatever. It's, it's amazing. It's almost as if that whole town has been built on the worship of success or something like that. Anyway, that's another point. But that's what they say. Do you want to know what Christian success is? Christian success is follow the Spirit. It's as simple as that. Do we always get it right? No. Do we always have pure motives? Never. Will it lead to fame and wealth and glory? Probably not, but it might. Will it require humility? Definitely. Does it guarantee zero suffering? Absolutely not. Does it guarantee life in all its Christ-like fullness? Yes. Follow the Spirit. 
And if that's the case, surely our prayer needs to be the same as Paul's. To better follow the Spirit, we need more of the Spirit, so we might know him better. Let go and let God. Because finally, the Spirit is always powerful, which means he can change situations. People in the Bible pray as if their prayer actually makes a huge difference. Because they know what God is like and they know what his power is like. And let me read you what Paul thinks about it. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Is that powerful enough for you? It's all yours. Just let go. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about The Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.